If you've ever wondered what goes through a therapist's mind when they're working with clients, or wondered how therapists view their profession on what might be possible to up-level their services to clients, this discussion is for you. Hey, Adele Wong here, and welcome to this podcast where we explore all things around creating one bodacious, awesome, amazing life and livelihood. And recently, I had the privilege of interviewing an amazing human being and therapist, Kira Wackett. She's a therapist who has been working with clients a long time. And when I found her online, I just had to have her on this podcast because there's so many overlaps with what she is seeing and thinking is possible with clients, what I'm seeing and thinking is possible with my clients, and this juicy intersection. And she points out where therapy as a profession could really up-level to serve people at a deeper and higher level, which got me all excited because there are a lot of intersections in that discussion with what I do. So sit back and enjoy this juicy conversation that may give you ideas on what's really needed to uh, thrive and not just survive (laughs) moving in this one amazing life. Hey everybody, Adele here, and today I am so excited to have as my guest speaker, Kira Wackett. Kira is amazing, and the reason why I hunted her down is because I felt it was time on this podcast to have more in-depth conversations, really getting into the root of why people are struggling so much past the typical you know, what your thoughts are, your negative beliefs, focusing on the positive, reframing, which are all useful. But Kira is a master at talking about something that fascinates me even more, and that's a topic of shame. So Kira, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so pumped. I'm so excited. I love juicy, meaningful conversations. And this conversation about shame is something that I think some people are wrapping their heads around a little bit, but Mm -hmm. it can feel so abstract. Like, oh my God, my brain is blowing up. I know it's there. And for me personally, I can speak from personal experience. This was something that permeated every aspect of my life earlier on, and I didn't know it. It was like this smell that no matter where I went, there I was. No matter how positive I was trying to be or how many self-help books or trying to be all this stuff about being positive, which I, I'm really excited we're going to have a conversation about <laughs> this whole performative authenticity thing. Oh, my God. But I didn't realize what I was fighting the whole time was me, myself, and I, and shame. Mm. So for, for, for folks, um, Kira is a licensed mental health expert. She's been d- working with people for 10 years around things like um, eating disorders, anxiety, and shame. And um, I just think it's, we're going to have a juicy conversation. So Kira, I'd love to hear a little bit, just to start us off for people who don't know you, how did you get so intrigued about this, this one thing that we're going to talk about today that goes beyond just relationship coaching or, you know, think of things, just think of things this way or cognitive behavior therapy. I mean, they all have value. But tell us a little bit how you came to focus on shame. And first of all, what do you think shame is and and how you got into it and how it really does seem to be at the core of everything going on? So take us away. 
Yeah, I love that. And I think the two questions of kind of how did I get here and what Mm -hmm. is shame blend together really well for honestly what I think so many people's experiences when they actually start to recognize shame is in their life. I had, so I am somebody that survived a lot of early childhood trauma. I struggled with a lot of interpersonal distress as a result of the trauma, a lot of anxiety. I had an eating disorder early in my adult life that I had to kind of navigate and find healing from. And the complexities of what it's like to work through childhood trauma and compounding trauma as you get older, you realize it's not just, well, if you go to therapy for six months, everything is fine. It's a lifelong sort of process. And in my journey to healing, I think I was always left feeling a bit unsatisfied. And we can definitely hit on this because obviously I'm a licensed therapist. I think therapy is great. I also think the therapists that I saw were not great for me. And so sometimes what was happening is I was leaving going like, wait, so am I the problem? Like what? (laughs) I don't understand why this isn't getting better yet. Or like people wanting to simplify the answer to a point where then when it didn't get you where you thought you needed to be like, okay, we're checking some boxes. I'm not, you know, it will think about eating disorder recovery specifically. I'm not restricting. I'm not purging. Great. But I still feel like crap. Oh my gosh. Broken, you know, so juicy because I love it that you're a licensed mental health expert and you're addressing this because I sometimes feel like, well, it's the non-therapists that think this way. Well, I went to therapy for six years and I still feel miserable. I understand myself, but I don't feel any better to have someone in the field kind of critiquing like the limitations or where things aren't going deep enough, I think is so juicy that you experienced this for yourself. Yeah. I mean, and I think that was where... I had this interest for a long time to go into medicine. So I really wanted to do psychiatry and that has evolved through honestly working through shame, which I'm sure we'll get to and realizing that I didn't have to be the best, which is what my shame told me I needed to be in order to be worthy and good enough and sort of getting to these certain elite levels of success and status and stuff like that. And when I kind of, again, kind of coupling along this journey, I was going through with my own mental health, exploring my career and what I wanted to go into. I found myself really interested in the idea of therapy, but interested in the idea of changing the way we think about therapy, changing the way that we think about what, what does the work look like? And I think what I learned in my course of kind of training and understanding is that part of the problem is people going into the field ill-prepared for all the complexities of human existence. And I think a lot of that is because how, how can any of us fully understand the complexities of what it means to be here in this world? I also think this sort of pressure on the therapist side, that if you haven't worked through your own stuff, you feel this urgency to fix. You ha- It's your job to fix it for people. So it's nicer if things are in a neat box. It's nicer if somebody feels reprieve, if they leave their session and they say, well, I feel better versus they leave their session and they say, I feel worse. So I think a lot of the times what was happening is I would kind of sink into this, what we call the therapeutic window where the work could happen. And then I'd get pulled out of it because of, I think the therapist's anxiety, because it was like, Mm -hmm. well, no, 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 you have to be okay. I need to make sure that you're okay. I wasn't suicidal. Something wasn't going to happen, but I, I kept just sort of kissing the surface of doing the like deeper feeling and then being pulled back out. And what I learned in my training is that that's part of the issue is that we are a culture. I mean, I'm in the U S I know that not everybody listening to this will be, but a lot of cultural systems are designed the same way of band-aid solutions. 
I feel distressed. What's the quickest way to make it feel better so that I can move on and keep going? And that is because we're founded on this sort of urgency, productivity, get it together, move forward. Everything's got to be better standpoint. And as I'm kind of doing my training and going through this and I'm thinking, gosh, you're giving me five sessions to help somebody heal from all this trauma. I, that's one that can't be my sole job. That can't be the goal of the work. We're reframing. We got to reframe the way we think about what our job is and how our legs of connection to other support systems need to be brought in more. But two, you're creating unrealistic expectations that then when it doesn't work out, you're either setting up the patient to feel like they're broken or the system is broken. And oh, here, here, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. I can really resonate this and with this and, um, yeah, I love your observation about yeah. what's been happening in the therapy field because um, I think I, I think therapy needs to evolve really mm-hmm. into a different model that there's really nothing to fix. I mean, I know that's the premise of therapy. Right. You have a problem, right. and you, but it's in my experience because I have a lot of clients that are therapists. They've done mm-hmm. the work. They're they're seeing clients. And the piece that seems to be coming through, it's, it's around the shame piece that we're going to get into that's so juicy. It's, it's really, it doesn't have words. Mm-hmm. I sometimes feel like therapy is too cognitive. People talk too much versus just sitting in the yeah. silence and in the presence, slow it down before you start blurting. Because sometimes what I've noticed is people are so intent on analyzing and understanding their problems through mm-hmm. therapy, that they can tell you a great story, mm-hmm. but they, it's still, you, you can tell it's a cognitive, it's like watching, uh-huh, mm-hmm, but they don't feel anything. And yeah. so if the therapist has not done enough work in presence and dealing with their own shame, that mm-hmm. the client's shame is so scary, we must get them out of that ASAP. Mm-hmm. It creates this model of urgency. You can feel it in the sessions. I've got five left on the EAP yep. or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really absurd. Would yeah. you like to speak to that? I mean, there's yeah. some problems with the industry. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this is, I think there's an issue on both sides. And I've seen this because of the pandemic. We saw a lot of shifts where insurance companies weren't limiting sessions in the same way. And so there was a little bit of that kind of relief of that pressure of you have to get some point done. We have to prove that you deserve to be in therapy. We have to constantly be, I mean, and that's the big distinction a lot of times from the side of therapy versus coaching is you're getting a diagnosis. You, Mm. so you have a formal diagnosis when you come in and then you are constantly having to, which I think is beneficial to a degree. You're having to conceptualize and write out treatment plans to be able to prove that the work is necessary. And I do think that's helpful because on the one hand, in a private practice field, it's easy to just keep seeing your clients every week mm-hmm. and to just let it be what it is, especially when you start to enjoy your clients or, you know, they're just wanting to complain to you and you're like, fine, I could take an hour and just listen to somebody vent. And so then there's, there's a need to have that. But on the flip side, what we saw is again, that pressure to people of like, fix it in five sessions, fix it in 10 What I saw during the pandemic, and I think where I really felt some burnout on the side of the therapy field is when that was lifted, the, the pressure to do the work sort of got, went away. And I think this is going to be really interesting to talk about in relation to shame too, because we're so, shame is ultimately the belief that we are inherently unlovable or unworthy unless we perform a certain way. That's Oh, say that again. Say that again. Say that again. I love that. 
So shame is really birthed from this belief that we are inherently unlovable or unworthy unless we perform a certain way. And in the cognitive behavioral therapy world, that term is called a core belief in sort of everyday language for hearing more limiting beliefs being used. But the idea is I'm not good enough. And it is your innermost belief about yourself is that I, who I am, I, Kira, today am not lovable, unworthy, unless I make up for inherent deficiencies that I have. And shame comes in like a white knight that is trying to say, well, I'll help you. If you do this, if you perform these ways, if you meet these expectations, everything will be fine. And what it does is it's integrated. It's a fear response. So what it does is basically it uses your fear brain to suss out any threat, anytime you could be seen exposed. And then it goes, do this. Here is what you need to do. You need to, it could be small things. Like I remember in middle school, in high school, pretending to like country music because all my friends liked it. And I didn't want to be seen as complaining or high maintenance or annoying or wearing the same clothes that all of my friends wore because that was what was in style. And that's what you were supposed to do. And then you get older and you see it as things like, well, I don't want to call somebody out for misgendering somebody. Or I think that was actually quite a racist comment that somebody made. But if I say something that I'm in danger of losing my job. And so you're constantly feeling this way that you need to perform and hide. What we learn is that shame is really founded in systemic isms and then perpetuated by that belief that we are not good enough. And so it's all rooted to the need to get external validation and support And if we link this back now to therapy, as soon as the sort of need to meet these expectations externally are set up, people oftentimes don't have that internal drive because they haven't been given the chance to build it in the same way. So then what I was seeing is people just wanted to come in every week and they were just ready to like, I just need to complain. I need to vent. But the onus and the willingness to do the work was missing. And they were like, well, I need, I'm not motivated. I'm not this. And that's where we're getting it wrong is motivation oftentimes is fleeting. I mean, we all know this with goals, with things like that. I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. Well, my motivation is great at 8 o'clock the night before. At 4.59, 5 o'clock, when my alarm goes off, my motivation is pretty low. But what we were seeing then is then I think people kind of got stuck in that. There was no longer, well, I need to get better because somebody else is doing it. The system is doing it. Well, now it comes from me, but I ultimately believe I'm a piece of crap. So I don't have the belief that I'm going to get better. I don't have the drive to do this. I don't have the security that I have skills in me to do this. So now I'm just going to stay here. And now there's a complacency and a stagnation that I think happens. And as a therapist, that creates burnout in me because I don't, I mean, I can only speak for me and my role as a therapist, but that's not how I want to do the work. Like I want you to be able to unpack it and sit in the hard stuff. And I want to be there with you there. You know, there's, there's a saying in the coaching industry, you never want to be the most motivated one in the room. Right. Talking about that. I could relate to this feeling Mm -hmm. of, but I'm so fascinated by what you just said that if I don't feel like I'm any Um, if I don't feel like I'm a worthwhile person, that's going to keep me from feeling any sense of motivation to change something. I had never made that link, you know, I think. And then if I get a glimpse of motivation to, you know, get up early um, and then I don't, that just proves the point. Well, I don't have the motivation because I'm, you know, a piece of crap. And the cycle of whatever I try will fail because there's something wrong with me. And so why even bother? getting motivated. I can, I'm, it's the first time I've seen that link 
of, yeah. you know, because I think sometimes people are trying to get motivated, motivational speaking, you know, all these books, which is, they help for a while. They, they in right, some right. way, I mean, everything is useful. Everything's useful. I'm, it's just, why is it that it doesn't, it doesn't hold, you know, what is the missing piece? And I think we're getting into this, this, this fundamental work, although I think that word scares people. What do you mean yeah, by yeah. work? What does yeah. it mean to do the hard work? Is It's not literally physical labor. It's not mental calculations on a spreadsheet. But can you, for people who have never done therapy, what yeah. does it mean to do the hard work? They may have heard it, you know, and they're healing something related to shame. I know I have shame. I know I don't feel good enough, but I need to do the hard work. What does that look like in, in the work you do with clients? Yeah. I love that question. And I think one thing that you just said before that I want to hit on first is when you talked about how everything is helpful. I, I 100% agree with you that everything has, has value that can be added where I think we have to ask more questions is what's our intention in doing it. Because uh-huh. I think a lot of us chase, you know, how many people have two dozen, three dozen self-help books they bought, you know, they bought untamed, they bought Girl, wash your face. Yes. Like they've got all these books and reading them. Yep. And it's a band-aid to help you feel better temporarily, but it doesn't yes. get integrated into yourself. It doesn't get integrated into who you are. So you think about things like I brush my teeth twice a day. That's integrated into the fabric of how I show up and what I do every day. There's a thought about it, there's a behavior. It's just automatic because you've been doing it so long. And it's rooted, if you if you break it down, in a value. It's rooted in my values of health, of taking care of myself, and it has become part of what I do every day. And so when you think about the things we want to do and what the work looks like from kind of healing, I so I kind of took what I learned as therapeutic modalities and developed my own and really kind of, I work with people and I, I see the necessity to go through five phases. Yeah. I notice you have a program. It's five, yeah. <laughs> five steps, five stages. Yeah. 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 And the, rising. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea behind it is ultimately we come in and we say, okay, so there's a problem. Well, if we don't do the work and I'm sure you've seen this with people that you work with too, that some of the initial work is to set up to say, well, we're not just looking to fix this like surface level issue that you're coming in with. So people are like, I don't like this. I just, I don't want to feel this way. I want to get better. You know, I hate my job or I'm not happy in my marriage or whatever it is specifically. Well, we go, okay, great. Let's talk about that problem. Let's talk about what's there, but let's really get at the what's underneath that problem. Why is it a problem for you? What is the issue? And what are the other areas you're seeing these things come in? And so a lot of the time, what I think is helpful for people is we define the problem. So that's part one, but it is really about saying, okay, so here's the complaints, but let's list out everything underneath it. Like at the root of it, it's, I don't feel like I am heard in my relationships. I don't feel like I can use my voice. I don't, let's say, for example, if it is, you know, work, if it's their relationships, their body image distress, well, what are some of the common themes? Well, maybe it's feeling like I'm always feeling like I'm one step behind. I'm feeling like I am constantly berating my body or my appearance or whatever it is. And I don't feel like I'm worthy of connection, or I feel like I am always taking care of people. So I silence myself. Well, then we go into it, we go, okay, so where did that come from? And I think that's the part that's missing is really thinking about that this is birthed out of your shame's system of performance. What you're doing now makes sense now that it's causing you pain. This isn't likely the first time you've done these behaviors. It's been coming up in different iterations throughout your life. So how I acted with a friend in middle school to how I'm acting with a friend in my 30s 
might look a little different, but the root is the same. They're still rooted in shame. I love that because people weren't born this way. Right. It's so where did it come from? And I love that you, you touched on that is systemic, you know, it's easy to blame just mom and dad, but they are a result of everything that's going on. That's a very shame-based system. And I'm, I'm not sure people have drawn that conclusion that their weirdness or whatever they're sitting with is directly related to a culture that has some problems, right? We are heavily shame-based, but it's invisible. No one can tell. It's not like you can look under the cover and say, oh, there it is. It's, it's everywhere. And so if a fish is swimming in water, it doesn't know it's wet. And so what I'd like to tell clients is there's nothing wrong with you. You're, you're a product of stuff and it feels like crap, but it doesn't Mm. mean you're broken. And when people start to see the water that's making them wet, they go, oh, maybe it's not just me. And what Mm -hmm. I love about that is my experience has been, and maybe you can speak to this, this sort of uncovering or um, what's it called? Deconstructing, I guess is the word. It Mm -hmm. happens only in relationship. And I think this is why the self-help books don't work. Um, (laughs) Podcasts might be the second best thing because people are trying to fix themselves alone. But that's the problem. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm going to read this book by myself and fix myself versus working with a therapist like Kira or with someone like me where I want to hear. It's more interactive. And how can you find your voice if you've never been heard? How do you do that alone with a book? It's it's not possible. So I just love that you touched on that. It's not just your parents. We are swimming in this sea, can you say a little bit more? Because this is an angle I don't think people know about this shame-based culture and system. So people don't feel like it's just them. Right. Well, and I think, I mean, so the, the way that I think about it is how all of us are inheriting the stories that we've been told or the rules that we've had to create in order to feel secure and to feel like we can move forward in the world. So when you dial that back and you do think about parents or grandparents or other caregivers, you think about how there are all of these different ways that everyone has had to survive. And so when you're born, your first instinct is to figure out how to survive in the world. And so, you know, think about infants and they know how to communicate when they need something. Typically that's crying for all cues. And then eventually they start to develop other systems, but they're going to do what they need to do to get their needs met, to get the, to get love, to get food, to get their diaper changed, whatever those things are to get basic needs met. Well, one of our basic needs is connection and belonging. And so it starts to get conditioned in us from the time that we're born about what that looks like. And as you get older, you're constantly, I'm seeing it in my two-year-old now, her awareness of the world is changing and she's testing out these different ways to say, well, what do I do when I just need a hug from my mom? What do I do when I want to feel like I'm a part of this playing with these kids at the playground? How do I do that? How do I make sure that I'm seen? And she's observing what other people do to be seen. She's observing what other people do to be heard. She watches if my husband and I have some sort of disagreement, she watches that to see, well, what, how do people resolve things? What does that look like? And so all those inputs we've had for decades have formed this basis of how you have to show up in the world. Well, if we pretended that all of the isms that exist didn't exist, that would be hard enough because we're still, as humans, we're driven to be comparative. That's part of our drive is to kind of be the best. It's sort of that Darwinism in us. 
Now layer back into it all the isms that we have, racism, sexism, fat phobia, all of these different things that come up. Well, then what you see is, okay, so this is how I have to fit in within my family system. But also I'm recognizing I identify as transgender. I'm a black person. I am short. I'm fat, whatever these things are. And then you say, okay, so now I have even more deficits I have to make up for. So if I can't, I can't make myself taller. I can't make myself this. Okay. Well, how am I going to amplify myself here? And what I think the compassion comes in for people is when you say, of course you did this because you're just trying to feel like you can belong because you need it to survive. So of course these systems of operation developed because we're in a world where we're not talking about systems that are dismantling of the isms and create space for everyone to feel valid. We're going into a work meeting and celebrating. I still see this as I'm doing corporate wellness work. And they're like, well, how are we going to measure the analytics? How do we know what the improvement is made? I'm like, I don't give a shit what that is. And somebody's survey response on one to 10, how successful it was. I care about six months from now when somebody sits there and they go, I have a right to set a boundary with my boss and to say that I'm not going to check my email after work. I remember this. I've been sitting with it for six months. I'm going to try it and I'm going to put that into practice. And you can't measure that in the same way. And so I think we have to let go of those systems too in the therapy field of like, how are we tracking progress? And yes, we need to know what progress and momentum looks like, but we need to be more honest that it looks more like this then it does this. And eventually if you kind of look tunnel down, it's like this, but you move up. If we can give people the grace to understand that, to say, so yeah, you're going to make some forward momentum. As soon as you start therapy, as soon as you start coaching, we know that your brain actually has neurological changes that happen that you feel better right away. That's great. And I hope that you feel like crap two, three sessions in because that exactly. means we're doing the work, you That's know? Yeah. Growth is not like a nirvana feeling of I've right. arrived. It's like, right. holy crap, I don't know which way is north and I'm lost and like, hang right. on. Right. You know, you said something a few minutes ago that I thought was so interesting about these isms. The other mm-hmm. day I sat there and said, I tried to imagine what life would feel like this imaginary world if there were no isms at all. And I couldn't do it. You know, <laughs> and, and, and I think it's very naive. It's, the extreme is when people see, well, I I see no isms. I love everybody. Right, That's right. the ultimate, like you're completely clueless. But mm-hmm. if, if, we, if we could live in a culture, it, it will never happen because we're a society always has. But I, I couldn't imagine what that would feel like. It will not look anything like what we have now. And yeah, I think yeah. right now there is this tendency because it, there, we have a Eurocentric model of how things should be. There's this idea that with the isms going away, we would all be like we are now, just happier. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, the, the entire system would look radically different and you'll be uncomfortable for a bit. But it mm-hmm. would be interesting to play with, you know, because people don't even assume, they, they don't know that the assumption is what they're holding in their mind is a Eurocentric model that never occurred to them. You know, right. that even things like I have clients from around the world, um, different cultures, ideas of time are very different. So if you have the idea that timeliness is like a value in corporate America, and you've got people saying, no, wait a minute, we, we measure time differently. When is it time to have a certain topic come up organically? 
well, that doesn't sit right with corporate right now. And these are lovely examples of the assumptions that are haunting us. And we're trying to be rigid. You know, we've got the checklist and then people just stop talking, which is the worst. You know, when people just say, why should I say anything? You've already decided. Then it's very shame based. If you speak out of turn, oh my God. And so I just think it's fascinating how uh, we're so... Um, it's invisible. The other day I was at the grocery store and I saw this mom and she had a young little toddler. She couldn't have been more than a year and a half old. And the the little girl was sitting in her stroller and she was grabbing at maybe candy or something in an aisle. And the mom was distressed and she kept slapping this girl's hand Mm -hmm. and saying, bold girl, bold girl, like, don't do that. I thought, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, you're teaching this little girl that it's wrong to be curious. And, you know, what is this? And bold, you know, what is it's, it's loaded with a lot of ism. Good mm-hmm. girls don't do that. Yep. And I started thinking what happens when this girl is 21 years old, you know, right. a lifetime of this or, you know, being very compliant and that'll boomerang someday. The wildness went out of her very early. And so, yeah. And the mom had no idea. I'm sure she did. Well, she and I thought, think, yeah, this is the that, way you raise a good girl. Right. And that's where I think the, so the, com, like the comparative suffering piece, I think is important because a lot of us feel like, well, you know, I should, I should be able to handle this because other people are going through this. And so we kind of dismiss our pain and suffering. And also I think what happens is we start to only conceptualize suffering and pain through our own lens over time. So shame is very connected to our ego. Mm -hmm. And so our ego's job is to make sure that we're seen and heard. It's gotten kind of a bad rap because everyone thinks, well, if you talk about your ego, you're egotistical, you're Mm -hmm. arrogant, self-absorbed, but that's not what it is. It can manifest that way, but it is really your body's line of defense to make sure you get your needs met. We we couldn't live without it. We could not live without an ego. Yeah. And so when you think, you know, when you're giving the example of like the corporate America system, or even that mom, I think the part that's missed is both of those interactions are driven by and reinforcing shame because the corporate America system, or, you know, I think about a lot about politics. I think a lot about what we've gone through a big issue. Why when some sort of challenge comes out and the, the heel digging in that, yes, sure. Sometimes it is because they believe that one thing is absolutely right. And that, you know, there's no other option. But 98% of the time, maybe even closer to 99% of the time, it's because if I give this up, if I allow the possibility that I'm wrong, if I allow the possibility that something could be different, it dismantles my whole system of operation. And that makes me feel shame. And I can't feel that. So the only solution is to make it so I can't hear anything and you have to be wrong because then I'm protected. And then what we see is these responses. So some people become the people pleasers. They become docile. They become quiet. Some people become those in your face, sort of pushing it. And then some people just detach from the world altogether. All three of those reactions are defense mechanisms for shame because we just don't want to feel like that threat is there, that we're going to be seen. And now we're somehow we're broken and we're going to be ostracized. I wonder where the idea came from that being wrong is shame. (laughs) You know, I mean, seriously, these are two separate things, right? Being wrong means, oh, I had the wrong date. It was tomorrow instead of today. Shame is something else. But when I look at corporate, corporate is driven by, you cannot be wrong. 
You, right. you can't be wrong. It's the right. kiss of death because shame is associated with that. Can you imagine what corporate life might be like for millions of people if people were allowed to be wrong? Like, mm-hmm. oh, and if there wasn't this, you know, this thing coming at them, how much easier a corporate existence could be when it's all right to be wrong. But that yeah. is not, that's not the corporate canon right now. It's tied yeah. to performance, which is being right all the time, risk assessment and you know, all that. Where do you think this idea that being wrong somehow negates the person instead of just, oh, I, I thought our project was going to be due on in June and it's August. Oops. And we move on. Instead, right. it's of this a lot of, oh my God, how could you be so stupid? Can right. you say, I think this problem is magnified in business a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the business world is really just a carryover of our education system in a lot of ways too, because I think about, you know, I'm 34. I don't know how to learn. I am just now figuring out how to learn. And that has a lot to do with, I think, systems of, you know, again, so somebody that dealt with trauma, dealt with a lot of anxiety, my coping response, my shame response has been the more take care of everybody else, become very submissive, be, the perfect person in all ways. And that translated to things. And I I have a natural ability to get good grades. I don't necessarily know that that means I'm smarter than somebody else. I know that that means I know how to play the system. Mm -hmm. And so in school, you know, I was the A student all the time. And what I got away with in school, based on what kids that I was friends with that didn't get A's, the ways that I could miss an assignment or screw up on something. Or I even remember I was having a really bad day. My mom, I had just found out my mom was going back to prison and I was having a terrible day. And I was sitting in the food court or the like cafeteria area with my friends. And I was just so pissed off and I started a food fight and my friend Brian and I were the two that really like made it happen. I just was angry and I threw something and he was started throwing food too. And he knew like he was one of the closest people to me. He knew what was going on. And I think he just stood up and started throwing food in solidarity with me. And he was like a solid CD student. And people always kind of labeled him as a troublemaker. He didn't try as much, these kind of things, not knowing that he had a lot of trauma at home too. And, but I was the good girl. I was, you know, the captain of the volleyball team, president of national honor society. I had, you know, I was second in my class at the time. And so we both got in trouble. Well, I basically just got a slap on the wrist and he got an out of school suspension. And it was just noticing these things. And I think that those instances, however, anybody listening to this fell, if you were the person that was getting the hundred percent and you got all the extra credit or you fell on the far end where you were constantly feeling like you were getting D's and F's or C's or somewhere in the middle, what you're seeing is that there's a system and what it looks like to be right. And you are compared on that system. And so there isn't the same, like my husband struggled in school his whole life. He's now a physician. Like he went through med school and it was hard for him. I mean, he didn't learn how to study till he was in medical school because he was just starting to figure it out. And the way that, I mean, I had counselors from the time I was, I think like in sixth, seventh grade talking to me about college planning. He never once had somebody talking to him about college planning. They sent him like tech school manuals. So you see this already happening. And what happens is 
he kind of flew under the radar in certain ways where he could fail and he could explore in a different way because the expectations were different. And so what I think happens is I think we see the system of, well, the people up here are going to be the most successful. They therefore get the most tending to, they get the most water from the watering can. So you need to be up here. And the system says, you just need to get it right not you need to learn the material. So I couldn't tell you 98% of what I learned in school, but I know that I got straight A's all through school because I knew how to do the system. And that's the difference. And I think that's what corporate America is based on is we're not pausing long enough to be like, dude, the system's broken. Like we are, you're now you want to get everybody back in the office. All the, I had a client yesterday tell me, I wish that we had the grace we had two years ago. Because the grace that we were given two years ago around just realizing life happens was long overdue. And we've gone back to a system where now you can't make a mistake or you feel like your job's on the line. And oh I think gosh. that right there. Here. I, know, I, I totally relate to this, you know, in, within myself yeah. and my clients, because I have a lot of, you know, high performing clients, they're C-suite, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the shame that runs them, I'm, you know, and this idea, I think you, you, you're really onto something that society looks at performance and says, oh, if you're an A student, you know, you're less shameful or more worthy than right. if you're a C student or, or whatever, instead of, yeah, that's a fascinating connection. I had never put it together like that, that shame is dumped on people in different ways. So if you're an A right. student, I guess you're only as good as your last grade or whatever. And if you're a C or D student, well, we don't expect anything of you at all. Right. Um, and it's still a very punitive shame-based model. Yeah. And, and it, you know, think about how that is laden in with isms and thinking about friends of mine that immigrated to the U S and getting a hot, getting the grades, getting into certain school, like that was what you had to do because of the sacrifices and that's what success has to look like. And so there is this, well, you're already coming from behind. So you have to make up for it here. And that's how we see systems of shame, keeping people stuck in systems of operation. So if someone is coming from behind, you know, Mm -hmm. how would you talk to them without using shame as the motivator? Like we know the world is unfair, Right. right? It's an unfair playing field. There are people that are naturally more privileged. There are people who are less privileged. But how would you encourage everyone to do their best, go for it anyway, without this shame-based model of you need to work 10 times better than everybody else because you, whatever, immigrated or your English wasn't as good or whatever. That's a lot for a young person to saddle. But is there another way to have that conversation that's not so shame-oriented? Like I'm I'm kind of at a loss. Like what would you use instead that feels much more inspiring, but also realistic. I mean, we're not trying to say we see nothing. Everybody's the same. We're not. Exactly. Right. You know, how would you have that conversation? Yeah. I think that that is such a great place to go. Cause I think this is the meat where when people are doing podcast interviews, they're doing, Mm -hmm. you know, here, read this book. This is the stuff we're not talking about because now it's like, all right, so great. But what the heck do we do with that when the realities now are this? And I guess at least the way I think about it is there needs to be two elements of discussion. So one, I think about, you know, friends of mine that they are raising 
black kids in America, the conversations that they're going to have with their kids are going to look different than the conversations I have with my very white presenting daughter, even though she's Middle Eastern, like we look very white. And so there's a very different description of what life is going to look like for her than what's going to look like for my friends and their kids. And I think certain degrees of that have to be talked about from a safety and security standpoint, because again, we have to be mindful of the culture that we live in. And so we need to talk about what changes can look like, but you have to be willing to kind of address where you're at now. And then what does it look like? I I love that, that you're encouraging more communication right now. It's like, oh, we don't discuss that. Right, right. That's such a tender, touchy subject. We we don't want to be accused of anything. You know, like even talking about this, everyone is so terrified. Yeah. You know, and you're just being open. Hey, the world's not fair. And we're just letting you know what the possibility, then everyone can relax a little bit into the truth of the matter. I think that's fantastic. Instead of, Well, well, avoid this topic or say the right words. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the biggest thing when we're thinking about talking to our kids is, and this obviously, I have to recognize that I have a point of privilege in terms of the amount of education I have, the field that I work in. I have a supportive partner that's willing to do this work with me. And so what it looks like for me in my home is very different than what it looks like for some people in different circumstances. But I think one of the things that's really scary is when we have children that we're thinking about we automatically go back into that same sort of corporate mindset, that same sort of, you know, performance mindset. You have to get it right. And this is your job. And vulnerability is a weapon, not a strength. And I think that is the thing that if we could give more of our clients the space to say, of course, you're failing and flailing. You're not supposed to get it right. We don't know the answers. We're doing the best we can. And that validation of, well, of course, you laid in bed today. Of course, you didn't do the thing that you wanted to do because you sat there ruminating all day about how you failed this past week because you didn't get everything done. Okay, what does self-forgiveness look like to say I'm human? And if I I look at- I can't even imagine my mom saying that to me growing (laughs) up. It would be, get your ass out of, you know. So I just love that. Just just even the fantasy of that is enough to open up new ways of thinking about parenting. Because if we don't have podcasts and conversations like this that just plant a seed, that people yeah, could yeah. play with. You don't even, the people don't even think about that. If your kid is depressed, of course right. you're depressed, you know? And instead of, you know, the, the opposite is, it's not so bad. Right. Think of all the starving kids in Africa, like that kind exactly. of- Exactly, yes. The stuff that, again, that's shame. That's shaming them into doing something else because, well, this is what you need to do to stay in the system. Instead of saying, I hate that you're feeling this way and I don't know the solution but I'm going to be with you I here don't in know it. the solution. How yeah, many yeah. people are willing to be that vulnerable? Right. You know, especially because parent, that, you know. that jeopardizes their shame story. If I don't know the solution, then what do I have? And then I am like standing in an open field with hunters all around me waiting to come and get me. And that's the feeling that we're all trying to avoid instead of saying, maybe there's nobody out there. Maybe I am not constantly at a threat of not belonging. And if we can start to work through that, we can start to shift that in the way that we talk about things to our kids while still having those honest conversations of saying, you know what? I work in the field of eating disorders. When I'm working on recovery for people and they're gaining weight and they talk about their fears of being treated differently, they're going to be treated differently if they're in a bigger body. Do I agree with it? No. Do I wish we could change it? Yes. I can't put a Pollyanna sort of like tape over it and try to make it, well, everything's going to be great. You just got to love yourself, body positivity, just, you know, reframe the thought instead of to say, no, the system sucks. 
And there's some parts about it that really, really suck. But what I do know is when we're focused on you meeting some expectation for everybody else, you're miserable anyways. So what if we tried this other way? What if we tried showing love to your body? What if we tried showing ourselves grace and forgiveness? And we said, look, I can explore this other way. You're still going to have some misery. There's distress on both sides. But which element of distress at least allows you to feel like you're living your true self, not constantly berating yourself for not being what everybody else wants you to be? Right. If there's going to be struggle both ways, pick the one that happens to feel a little bit more like you because, you know, life has pain. I mean, there's no guarantee. Everybody wants a guarantee. And I think that's lovely. Even people just acknowledging that there is a problem without having an answer takes vulnerability, takes courage. And everyone can relax because I feel like this ladle of shame, this like it's the stuff that's ladled on everything. People Mm -hmm. are trying to convince themselves that the reality is somehow different than what they're really feeling. It's like what's in front of your eye is different than what's behind your eye. And the problem must be me. Um, I mean, I know I lived that for many years and I see that with my clients also. Everyone is trying to get with the program without understanding, is there a program here? I mean, are are we all sort of plugged into the matrix or something, you know? Yeah. Well, and this idea of, so it's called the drama triangle and I've seen it used a lot more recently kind of in so the social media world and stuff when people are talking about codependency, because I think that's been something that people are exploring more. But the, the drama triangle is basically that there's three uh, points. There's the hero, the victim, and the villain. What I think about with that triangle is I think it perfectly sums up what shame does to us is the more we get sort of trapped in or entrenched in our shame, the more we bounce between one of those three roles our whole life. So we become the center of every story. Somebody gave a bad look. It's probably because you did something wrong. Someone was upset in a meeting. That's on you. Your boss is stressed. It's because you didn't do this thing. Your kid didn't sleep well because you gave them this thing to eat too late at night, whatever it is. So we become the hero, not meaning we think we're great and amazing, but saying I'm responsible for everything, for everybody's pain and problems. I'm the villain whenever something goes wrong. It's my fault and I'm responsible. Even if it's not my fault, I'm responsible to fix it. And if I can't, then I'm the villain. And when I think, we cr- go ahead, yeah. keep going. No, I think the problem that the resistance I've seen with my clients to letting go of this, because they, they think shame is their special sauce to success. Right. If I let that go, I'm going to get really, really fat. And, yeah. and really lazy, I'll lose my job and I'll be broke because I'm no right, longer right. beating myself up to make myself do things. It's, it's a scary thing because if your whole life has been built around this knife in your back moving you and you're taking the knife out of your back, well, then what runs you? And I'm like, that's right. a great question. I mean, that's worth right. exploring on this planet. What would your yeah. life be like if you didn't do it that way? Don't wait till you're 90 and then yeah. be regretting that, you know, it's one of the biggest regrets I think you've read that article, one of the, the, yeah, the, yeah that you well, never in your own life. Yeah. And you think about, you know, so the third pillar being the victim side and the idea being we play these two roles until we get to a point where we crash. And then we say, you know, we're resentful because our partner never does anything at home. Yeah. We're always the one that's taking on all these roles and nobody ever speaks up at work and actually supports you and your ideas because you've been doing it yourself the whole time. This isn't to blame you, but to say, this is what happens. And other people aren't, yeah, right. And they're all in their own triangles. So nobody's connecting to each other and just being like, look, again, going back to that, none of us have it figured out. We're all just trying to learn. And I think, I do think that's a product of individualistic cultures versus collectivistic cultures. And there can be pros and cons to both sides of living, but it's this loss of seeing 
the integration of us as humans with each other and the collective sort of healing that can happen if we all realize we all have a place. There is there are resources, there are supports for all of us because right now we're just so like, I have to have it all. This is this is my cake and I can't give you a bite of my cake because then what am I gonna have? But also I want to give you all my cake and then I get to the end of it and I have nothing. And then it's so it's one or the other all the time. And that's where the exhaustion comes in. Yeah. And that's where we erode. And I'll I'll send you a link. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. I'll but there's put, a- I'd be happy to. I want all my listeners to get the, <laughs> the best resources. I love this conversation because because, yeah, I mean, as a therapist and me as a coach, we do talk to a lot of people in that third yeah. resentment. And that is hard to live with when you're at 80, 90 years old, a resentment of your whole life. Yeah, and of course. They were never, you know, it's like, so I tell, t- try telling people, let's not wait that long. Let's right. dance with these parts now. And maybe you're, we're all of them sometimes, but there's no shame in that. It's just right. being human because right. people are like, I don't want to you know, I don't want to blame myself. I'm working on myself. And I'm like, but right. by definition, that's saying that something's wrong already. Yeah. And then people are like, well, what would I do with myself if I wasn't constantly improving myself as if my life right. was one big self-improvement project? And I'm like, that's a great question. Yeah. And then I, sit with it versus giving him the answer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. people are like, well, Adele, what do you think? I'm like, I'm yeah. not interested in what you think. This is awesome, Kira. We could talk for hours. I'm Pretty sure we're going to have a part two. I do not want to take over your whole afternoon. I know you've got another call. I'm going to make sure you have enough time to get there. But this has been amazing. Um, folks, we will have all of Kira's information in the show notes. Kira, your your website is adversityrising.com. Is that yep. right? Yep. And you've got a, a program coming up in January, I believe, uh, yep. where you're talking, you're taking people through the five stages. Uh, good stuff. And really, this podcast is for people who want to dig down deeper instead of just the how to do X or the five who's he wants it's to get the, you know, make six grand in a year, whatever that is, you know, the band or, or six figures. Like, I'm not interested in that. Why are we struggling and sitting with the complexities? Um, uh, we need to be able to absorb more and more complexity than ever before. That means mm-hmm. opposite things that are true at the same time. Everybody wants a simple answer and that's not where we need to go for more wisdom. So Kira, this has been awesome. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Is there anything else you want people to know before we sign off? I think maybe the last thing, just because what happens when we start talking about shame is shame sort of begets more shame sometimes. So then people are like, oh gosh, now I have this and I'm doing this and this is how I'm getting this wrong. And so I think maybe to close it on the fact that all of us have shame and shame is not going anywhere. It is a fear-based response that's meant to protect you. What we're talking about doing in this conversation is taking it away from thinking I have to fix it or make it go away and more saying, invite some curiosity about how to work with it differently so that you don't feel like you're trapped inside of it or constantly burnt out from trying to perform in response to it. So giving yourself grace to say, Again, of course I feel Of shame. course. Of course I feel this way. And I can rethink how I want to respond to it, feel within it, rather than saying now I'm broken even more and I have to fix it. I love that. That is so inspiring, everyone. A, a sense of, of course, instead of, yeah. well, there <laughs> I go again, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. 
So that's the mantra for everybody today from this podcast. Of course, wherever your brain goes and beats yourself, of course, and you'll Mm -hmm. feel a little bit better, a little bit less shameful. And that was the whole point of this podcast. Kira, this is awesome. So everybody, until next time, thank you. Have a good day. Bye.